Training, mindset, integrity, incremental improvement. What can you do better today? Start right here with the Pandola Project. Hey guys, welcome back to the Pandola Project. This is your host, Matt Pandola. And I am producer Jake Parker. We just had one of the most inspiring episodes I think we've done to date, Matt. We just had Dana Hart. She happened to be my daughter's teacher her kindergarten year in her first grade year. And I couldn't help but to ask her to come in because I know how special she is. She really is one of those teachers that has put her whole self into her career and she really serves her students every single day. And we can't wait for you guys to hear this one. She's teaching dual linguistics and dual literacy to elementary school students. So Jake, I'm just going to quote Mrs. Hart here. She says, we advocate for equal access to high quality education for all students, regardless of the language they speak at home. And you know what, Jake, this is a teacher who's really serving our communities and really wants to see perspectives change and give a broader idea about how cultures can work together. So she says that it's so exciting to think about how we can open these doors to the world when we have perspectives and languages beyond those in our own homes. So I just love the lessons that she taught today, anywhere from learning to fail forward to understanding we're going to make mistakes along the way. And we even got to talking about if you're a parent out there listening or you're a student yourself, what is her perspective on our educational system? How is it that we are going to be able to help and serve our communities and be the best version of ourselves? That's what this podcast is all about. People like Mrs. Hart make the real difference. And I'm so honored that she came in today. And thank you for serving us, Mrs. Hart. I know that as a parent, I'm very grateful for what you've done for my own daughter. And it was almost like she had been listening to the podcast from the beginning, Matt. She even talked about some of the things we mentioned in our last episode, our Monday motivation about what makes a great teacher. She practices patience and empathy and understanding for all of her students. So I know that the listeners are going to get quite a lot out of this one with Dana Hart. Matt, how was your week going, man? Well, I'm frustrated today, Jake. Really frustrated. Tell me why. Well, I have come to understand that Apple doesn't really care about me that much. Are you sure you want to get on the bad side of Apple no, right I, now? No, I don't, actually. I'm going to blame it on AT&T instead. So, well, it's, it's certainly not my fault that you updated your phone. Right. I, I was just telling you how cool dark mode is, and Matt gets excited, updates his phone, and all of a sudden it's a useless brick. Yeah, you told me that I need to do it because there's this cool update that will allow us to communicate better in our notes it, it's for not, the show. It's not a lie. It's true. Yeah, no, no, it's not Apple's fault. It's not AT&T's fault. But uh, I think I just happened to get a uh, phone maybe made on a Friday just before the end of the work week. Mm -hmm. Somebody was a little sleepy at the Apple factory. Yeah, man. Yeah, you'll be okay, Matt. You'll get a new phone and then we can talk all we want. Yeah, and I... 
of course, you know, I'm not much of a phone person, but I do have people leaving me messages and wondering why I'm not getting back to Mm -hmm. them. And so that's kind of a bummer. And uh, even with Mrs. Hart, who we have in the show today, I just got her email earlier today and was able to thankfully review all the things that we're going to talk about. But I feel like I'm, yeah, out of the loop a little bit. Yeah, you're making it work, though. Making it work, buddy. Making it work. So, yeah. What about you? Well, I am feeling great because I've took the advice that we talked about in our last podcast and I'm doing more frequency in my exercise and less volume. I realized after that talk that that was my problem. I was getting really burnt out at like... Wednesday, Thursday, Fridays were really hard to go. And I'm on a roll this week, man. I love it, man. I'm glad that could help. (laughs) Yeah, it's been really great. And I I don't feel so sore and exhausted like I have been for the last six months. Yeah. So let's bring up the coughing for a second, because we might hear some coughing today, but this is a family show. So just to take the pressure right off, our little friend Piper here, she's got a cough. She's in the studio and she's smiling at me. So (laughs) Uh, She can't help it. If you hear a little bit of coughing, that's okay. This is Mrs. Hart's daughter, and she is bringing her family with her to the show because she's making it work for us. So we appreciate it. Exactly. She made time, and we appreciate that. So we will be accommodating as well. Speaking of whom, Dana Hart. Hi. Hello. Thank you so much for coming to the show today. Well, thanks for inviting me. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, this is going to be fun. And like we were just saying, you've got your, your kids with you. You are at an elementary school teacher specializing in a bilingual program. I don't have the right terminology, but you speak two languages and you teach two languages to your kids. So I am a developing bilingual myself. I I wouldn't call myself fluent in Spanish, but I'm on my way. In progress. I am in progress like all of us. And I am the English medium teacher in the dual language program at Jesse Beck. And I do have a a, a co-teacher, a partner who does the Spanish side of things. So, however, both of us have the same goal for our students, and that goal is bilingualism and biliteracy. By a pretty young age. Well, we start in kindergarten. Right. Yes. That's so, amazing. And and in hindsight, I see how valuable that could have been in my own life. Yes. It's brilliant. Yes. All of us need it. And immersion is really the best way. Sure. Yeah, yeah. that's absolutely. the only way I ever learned Spanish in college was because I had two nearly fluent roommates. And so I could go home oh, and actually practice what I great. had learned. Otherwise, it never would have worked. Yeah, exactly. Well, good. I'm glad you had that exposure. Yeah, it still didn't work because I forgot everything, <laughs> just you like everything else I learned in college. But uh, yeah, no, it's a great, minions. great experience. So you have a master's degree in education mm-hmm. from the University of Minnesota. You have an English as a second language endorsement. Is that like a certification, a training completion? Exactly. So once I moved here to Nevada, I ended up taking some classes for a couple years and adding an additional endorsement to my license. Speaking of Nevada, we are in Reno, Nevada. Jesse Beck is an elementary school in Reno, Nevada, Washoe County School District. Uh, You've been teaching for 14 years. Is that all been in Washoe County? It has not. I I got my degree, like you said, in Minnesota. I started teaching there uh, the first Two years of my career were in Minnesota, moved to California for a year, then I took a year off. Good for you. Um, worked in construction with my husband hey, in Florida. I used to do that too. <laughs> it's fun to work with your hands. Oh, 
yeah. So I can yield a chainsaw um, pretty decently. We did African safari theming. I'm impressed. Very, very different. Interesting. And then I got over it very quickly. Yeah, it and gets hard. We decided to move back here to Nevada. I went to high school in Carson, mm. um, and that's when I started at. Uh, an elementary school where most of the population were students who um, speak Spanish at home. Mm -hmm. But my goal there was was to teach them English. And then um, a handful of years later was when I had the opportunity to start in dual language. Um, Moved schools, had a different population, but now I teach for biliteracy. And you are constantly advocating for this program and programs like it, not just in our own community, but all over the place. You just got back from a conference. Tell me about that. Yeah. So I work part time as a biliteracy consultant with the Center for Teaching for Biliteracy, and I love it. It's added a new challenge to my career going from I teach kindergarten and first graders as my day job and then um, going to help out at workshops across the U.S., Um, with various different districts and teachers and administrators and coaches um, in all sorts of different dual language programs. And and, uh, they have different setups and I I get to help them with strategies and program supports and advocacy as well. I love it. And I just love the message that you're you're spreading this inclusive, everybody can talk to everybody kind of message. And especially when it's targeted toward kids, that's going to raise a really... I don't know if tolerant is the right word, but just a very open-minded adult eventually. Yeah, that's exactly that's exactly our goal. So helping kids understand that bilingualism really is a gift mm-hmm. and it opens the doors to the rest of the world. Um, it it helps us be more tolerant of one another, more inclusive of one another. Mm-hmm. And um, we're we're trying so hard to just help be a, a piece of the puzzle to change. Um, how the U.S. views multiculturalism and, and multilingualism. And uh, you, can, you can look at different research out there, but um, some research shows anywhere from 50 to 70 percent of the world is bilingual or multilingual. Whereas in the U.S., it's somewhere around 20%. Yeah, not so much here. Not anywhere near what the I, rest of the world I listen reflects. to a lot of podcasts based mm-hmm. out of the U.K., mm-hmm. and they'll drop French, Spanish, yeah. German. I'm like, how do you guys learn all these languages? I didn't learn Spanish until I was in college. I'm still working on English. <laughs> I mean, I'm not that good at it either, man. This is tough. But yeah. no, really, I, I commend you because that's such a cool mission that you guys have, and I, I hope you continue to... Be able to spread the word to more school districts. And yeah. please don't leave because we need you here <laughs> in Washoe County. But, you know, you said your day job is here and your your other job is all over. Keep spreading the word. I love that. Thanks. Yeah. So I know Mrs. Hart, um, just to give some background to the listener, but you happen to be my daughter's teacher. That's right. Her first two years of school, which... It's so important to me because such a fundamental part of the process that she starts school getting sort of the right first steps and she's able to really get excited about learning. And I talked to you about this before the beginning of the podcast started, but uh, I have to share with the listeners why I kind of asked you in the first place or one of the things anyways that was on the front of my mind because I would watch you the first day of school hugging the kids. They would stand in a line, Jake, getting ready to go into the classroom. She would hug each kid, say, 
what, Mrs. Hart? I believe in you. I mm. believe in you. And powerful. that's so powerful. And then halfway through the year and the end of the year, she's doing the same thing. Every day. Every day. That's part of your ritual. That's something that you, uh, did you always do that? Is that something that you started? You know, it's something I started a, a handful of years ago. Um, just thinking about, I don't know what happened that morning. You know, I don't know who got a good night's sleep. I don't know who had breakfast or who had, you know, only donuts for breakfast and, and the blood sugars running crazy in their body. I don't know um, if someone missed the bus and they feel stressed about making it to school. All I know is that I have them from that moment on. And there's only so much control that I have about what happens outside of the classroom. So I want their first step into the classroom to be a positive one. And so that they know that they're in a place where they're loved and where they're respected too. Um, and that I see their potential. So I want them to know right away every day. And that's exactly what we talked about in our last podcast, What Makes a Great Teacher. <laughs> Patience and empathy were two huge components. And so I imagine that you also have days when you're stressed. Of course. Maybe you missed the bus <laughs> and course. you're running a little late, but you still kept with that routine even when whatever you have going on. That's really important because... How many kids do you have in a class now? Typically, we have 24 per class. Okay, yeah. And mm -hmm. that's a lot of very different little people. They are so different. <laughs> but to be able to have that kind of a mass effect on this entire group of kids, and we'll talk about the effects, and you, you told us before the podcast it does work, but yes. uh, we'll get into that in a little bit. That is just amazing that you can control these, you know little animals <laughs> say, here's what we're going to do today. That's right. And I have seen these videos on Facebook and YouTube, and they really are touching when, you know, you see teachers really engage with kids. And the first step that I always notice is they get on the same level. Exactly. Like you'll kneel a little bit Make and you'll eye be contact. eye to eye with mm -hmm. them. Right. And right from that moment, you can see on the kid's face that, okay, I'm engaged now. Yes. I care now. Yep. I will listen now. And you make sure in that moment that you do have contact with every child right away. Because as the day goes flying by and there are all these expectations we have to meet, you don't always get that one-on-one -on -one time with everyone every day of course. the way that you want to. And so this guarantees every child has a gentle interaction that relies on nothing else other than their being there. And, and you're being excited to see them. Did you ever have anyone resist? Did anyone ever really have a really bad morning and just go, leave me alone? You know, you can tell sometimes when they don't want to make eye contact, mm -hmm. but I'll still, you know, give them a pat on the head and still tell them I believe in them and just, but no one ever resists so much that they don't want to hear those Run words. past you and no. hide. Not at all. That's good. And I imagine that, you know, if there is something going on in, in the student's home, then maybe you don't want to push it on some days. Exactly. But for the most part, you're making some kind of contact and going, I'm here. Yep. It's and okay. if you want to talk about yeah. it, we, let's talk later. Or... Don't force it, but yeah. allow it. Exactly. I think that's really smart. And that's obviously because you got a master's in education. <laughs> well, I don't know if it was so much the master's, just... It's more the people who've touched my life and, and remind me that if I want to be my highest and best, I need to expect that of others and let them know that I believe in them to to achieve higher levels. Experience, yeah. purposeful practice, Matt. We've That's talked about right. that before. 
Yeah, we uh, have talked about how education is important. Having your master's, that's a beautiful accomplishment, but more about, well, what kind of experience am I bringing Mm -hmm. with that education? And what I love about somebody like you, it fits in with our philosophy here, we're we're here to serve others. Right. Right. And so as a parent, I can say that I had such a huge sigh of relief when I heard you telling not only my daughter, but all the kids, I believe in you. I didn't have quite the same experience myself when I was in elementary school. Nor did I. (laughs) And the listener probably has heard me talk about my experiences with ADD, learning difficulties. And then I did end up having some teachers that over-delivered and and helped me a little bit further down the line. But I can remember being very intimidated and... I wish I had a Mrs. Hart back then, (laughs) but I had that sigh of relief when I saw that you were going to be Mia's teacher because I had my own sort of fears about my beautiful little girl who thinks the whole world is like a Disney movie. (laughs) (laughs) And I don't want her to be disappointed. And I don't want her to think that she's not good enough or that she's not smart enough or that... And I asked Mia before we did this podcast, what did you like about Mrs. Hart so much? And one of the things, well, she makes it fun and she always loved being able to have some engaging things like Mr. Eagle come home with her, <laughs> which I hear that was Senorita Yosin's idea. Is that? Uh, yeah. Well, I believe she and her teaching partner before I got there established this weekly routine of having a star of the week who gets to share little things about themselves each day. So that was a a tradition that we have continued for the seven years we've been together. You know, I mean, that just reminds me of another thing that I respect about you because just because something is already in the program and you come in now and you're going to bring your own kind of flavor to the Mm -hmm. program, let's say, you're not going to necessarily take something out because it wasn't your idea. Mm -hmm. And that's another reflection to me about ego. You know, this is a great idea. I'm going to continue this tradition, right? But uh, she she loved having Mr. Eagle and you take Jake, Mr. Eagle goes on a hike with you and you take a picture and you write about it and you're the star of the week. And it's a special thing and each kid gets to do it, right? Correct. And of course, the other side of things, but she said, Mrs. Hart loves everybody. And I know that that already speaks volumes about giving everybody a chance and putting everybody at what I say, 100%. So they're starting their day that way. My teacher believes in me. Maybe I'm struggling with something, but I know that she wants to help me. She's here to serve me. And, you know, it's a seven-year-old. They're not going to, well, actually Mia's now seven, so we say a six-year-old. Right. But she's not going to maybe think about it that way. But what I know is that she's in an environment where she feels like she can grow and she doesn't have to feel that intimidation. So that's such a wonderful thing that you bring. Listen, understand, verify, love. That's my version of love. But I feel like that is something that you do very, very well. 
Well, thank you. Absolutely. So, <laughs> it's super important to I, me. I think so, even as the students get a little bit older, and I hope we don't dwell on this because this is kind of a negative story, but I just saw in the news a high school teacher disarmed a kid who came to school with a, a shotgun, oh and gosh. he immediately hugged the kid and the kid started crying. Uh-huh. You know, here's someone who is obviously very deeply upset and violence was prevented with love, love. and care. Absolutely. Oh, wow. it, it was a really powerful yeah, video. You guys should check it too. out. It was mm-hmm. um, just about a week or so ago. But anyway, my point is that you're starting that at such a young age. Now those kids, I'm sorry if I'm calling them kids, your students, will grow <laughs> a little bit older in the next coming years if someone's getting picked on you know they can probably care and they'll intervene and show love to someone else who needs it because you showed them that example yeah i i hope so and i hope too that they always have my voice in the back of their mind reminding them that someone believes in them Mm -hmm. no matter what they're going through and that they can be that kind of person for someone else too. I wish adults did that. (laughs) Well, and you know, it's fun too, because every once in a while in the mornings, I'll look at the parents as they're, as they're wishing their children goodbye and Mm -hmm. giving their hugs. And I'll look at the parents and I'll say, I believe in you too, you know, (laughs) and give them a hug. And yeah, so it's, it's really nice to have that sense of community. Mm Mm-hmm. And, and we're all here for each other. Yeah, I, I hope we can propagate that some more because yeah, that sounds like it. a really nice world to live in. <laughs> Doesn't it? And we all accept each other regardless of our home language. And yeah. and that's one of the coolest things about your story is you are advocating so fiercely yes. for this dual language and that inclusive mindset. So tell us a little bit more about your life. How did you come to be on this path? What was the spark that really got you like, I am going to pursue this as my career? Well, I've always wanted to be bilingual myself. And um, in my elementary school, we had Spanish just 30 minutes twice a week, I think similar to how kids go to music class or computer class. Um, So I was fortunate to have Senor Alstrom uh, in in my elementary school. That pushing. doesn't sound like a Spanish name. <laughs> I <don't>. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't, you know, I, I just learned bits and pieces there, but it was more the foreign language perspective. So here you can learn your colors and your numbers and maybe some letters and, and names of some farm animals in Spanish. And it was, to me, it was so exciting to be able to speak a language other than what my family spoke at home. So I, I took some Spanish classes through high school and through college and I never did the traveling abroad, like an exchange program in college. I was an athlete through college, so I I felt that that was my job. And I couldn't take time off from being an athlete to go and and really work on my bilingualism. So I kind of skipped that opportunity for a different one. And then I just got started in my my teaching career and, and just kept practicing with the Spanish my, on my own and, and working with children who spoke languages other than English at home. And I decided that once I had children, I really want my children to be bilingual. I want to raise a bilingual family. And uh, I met... Senorita Yosen, as she goes by, at a professional development that we took together. And it was a five-year course that we took called the Kindergarten Cadre. And and we learned how to be better kindergarten teachers together. And at the time, I was working at a school where 85% of the student population um, was considered English language learners. And my job 
was to get them to read, write, listen, and speak in English. And I just knew some of the research behind bilingual education and got talking to Senorita Yosen, who is from Argentina. And she was working as a kindergarten teacher in a bilingual program and then got the job at Jesse Beck a few years into it. And we befriended each other and noticed our philosophies were very similar. And um, the, the English medium teacher who she had been working with decided to take a job elsewhere. And so she thought of me and called me on the phone and she said, will you marry me? <laughs> and I was like, okay, let's Make do it forever. this. Yeah. So um, we have a unique situation in that the way our program is set up, our students spend 50% of their time learning in Spanish with Senorita Yosen and then 50% of their time learning in English with me. So then we, we swap students and that's how like the kindergartners start their day in Spanish while I teach first grade English and then we switch students for the second half of the day. So that was my path to dual language education and I've been doing that for seven years now. This is year seven. Well done. Yeah. I well, hope it's going well for doing it for seven years. It's Good getting job. better and better Good. each year. <laughs> yeah, I love that you started this with Senorita Yosin because you were trying to become a better version of yourself as Absolutely. a teacher. Mm-hmm. And then you created an opportunity out of that, yeah. right? That preparation led to an opportunity. Yep. And so, you know, we talked about that you know it's not luck that that happened it was meant to be that way but you put yourself in that position and exactly. we talked a little bit too about there's a i feel like a certain burnout rate with <laughs> teachers yes and so it's obvious with you just didn't you just get back from doing a workshop i did yeah so i work part-time now as a biliteracy consultant with the center for teaching for biliteracy in fact seven years ago when i started with the dual language program at Jesse Beck, uh, we had hired uh, Cheryl Euro, who, um, along with her co-author, Karen Beeman, they wrote the book Teaching for Biliteracy. So Washoe County School District had hired Cheryl to come in and do professional development with the dual language schools that we have here. And it was at that time that I learned, wow, teaching for biliteracy is different than teaching for monoliteracy. And I need to change how I'm teaching to be effective for my students. Mm. So I just soaked everything I possibly could from these professional development opportunities. And each year, um, Senorita Yosin and I made more changes to our program to be more effective. And we continue to evolve along with our students. So what I do now is the Center for Teaching for Biliteracy has hired me to come in and I do some blogging for them. Um, But now I also work part time and help with their workshops when it comes to like introduction for biliteracy. And I get to work with teachers and administration across the U.S. improving their programs. Where can we see that blog? It is on teachingforbiliteracy.com. And mine is called How I Fit In. So there's a, a little stretch of truth. And, and Karen and Cheryl have been helping me with my identity as, as the English medium teacher. Um, it used to be that I was the monolingual English teacher because my level of Spanish was where it was. Mm -hmm. But now I refer to myself as a developing bilingual because no bilingual is ever truly balanced. That's a thing. That's totally a thing. It's totally a thing. Absolutely valid. So we need to all consider ourselves developing bilinguals. Sure. And that's how we refer to our students um, as we let them know that they're developing bilinguals and it's something to celebrate. 
And every lesson that we have, you become more and more bilingual. And they help me as well. So my blog is about being the English medium teacher in a dual language program. Excellent. So this seven or more year journey that you've been on, this couldn't have been easy. Can, no. Yeah, I imagine. <laughs> it still not. isn't. I mean, being a teacher is difficult enough yeah. as it is, but you decided to burden yourself with more responsibility. I know. Why do I do that? Why did you do that? Um, no, obviously because it's so important. Can you tell us about something that you're struggling with or something that you did overcome in the past? What has been one of your biggest struggles in this development? Well, that I say yes to too many things. I get that. <laughs> you know, and and just that I always want to be better and I want to be more efficient. So it's like a blessing and a curse, right? Where you know that that you can be doing more. And when I when I teach a lesson and I reflect on how my students responded and and the evidence that I have in my formative assessments and I look and I say, Oh, man, these kids got it. The language is there. The literacy is there. But these kids, what was I missing? Was it oracy development that wasn't happening? You know, where, what could I be doing better? So there's just always more. And that's true in life, right? We can always there really be doing is. more. Yeah. And we talk about with habits, you have helpful habits and you have hurtful habits. <laughs> and I believe you're the first person when we, we do a questionnaire guys before the podcast, we get to know the um, guests a little bit better in their background, uh-huh. but you're the first person I believe that you had what your best and worst habits were the same. I know. Well, I, I thought about it because I, I yeah, it, it works against itself. My, my desire to be better and, and it's great to have a growth mindset. We all want mm-hmm. that growth mindset and, and, Um, or at least I hope that we do, to become a better version of ourselves and to help others see that. But then you're constantly striving for more. It's like you set a goal and then the goal just seems you just need to raise the bar. The bar just keeps going. And when am I ever going to be satisfied? Probably never. Sky's the limit. (laughs) Yeah. Well, you know, and I find it ironic that when we talk about the burnout factor, yeah. There's a lot of people, regardless of the career, really, where they go to school, they get their degrees, Mm -hmm. they've learned all this information. But then after that, what are they doing for ongoing education? And for myself, I can just think about the times when I start feeling burnt out. The best thing I can possibly do is go intern with John Hodges at Nevada Physical Therapy or or go and uh, spend some time with Bobby in Colorado and I come back all fired up. Absolutely. And that's what happens when I go and I work with the Center for Teaching for Biliteracy. I go and I hang out, <laughs> I say hang out, but uh, we collaborate and I, the minds of these amazing professionals and how they, they advocate just so eloquently for our English language learners specifically, you know, the, I just, every time I come back from spending time with them, I think about all the things that I could be doing better, but I'm inspired to try to achieve the levels, at least somewhere close to the things that they're doing for 
our the future of our country really yeah it's really nice to have people that you look up to that you can go hang out with and get that fire from exactly speaking of the balance between all (laughs) these things that you're doing yeah what else do you do do you have a wind down how do you find balance in between being a teacher a counselor or i'm sorry what a consultant 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 and a mother obviously what what do you do for you I, well, exercise is very important Mm -hmm. to me and I, uh, my husband is very supportive and we each need our own independent time and, and that physical fitness is, has always been a really important piece of my life. So we make time for each other, um, away from the family so that we can, we can do what we need to do for our physical you guys train mm-hmm. together? No, we train opposite oh, <laughs> because our kids are still young. Yeah. And so it's we, your turn. Yep. So yeah. I get Monday, Wednesday, Friday mornings and he gets Tuesday, Thursday, Saturdays. And uh, we each have found something that we like and and try to vary it when needed. But um, mm-hmm. we yeah. both understand how important that that time is. No, that's that's yeah. great. You guys are a good team. Yeah, we, yeah. we do our very best. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> My wife and I do a very similar type of thing uh-huh. and it, it works, but um, we can't, we can't skip past the division one swimmer thing. Cause I want to hear more about, <laughs> Oh yeah. You know, we do have a lot of athletes that listen to the podcast, obviously. So I'm sure they're going to want to hear about this, but uh, you and I actually have another thing a little bit more in common. We're both from Connecticut. Originally. Yes. I was born in, in Connecticut and spent nine years in South Glastonbury. South Glastonbury, so not far from Hartford, guys, where I was. So that's kind of that's kind of fun. And so you took up swimming, I imagine, in high school then. Um, yeah, I started. My family moved to Carson City when I was eleven, and that's when I started really swimming, focusing on swimming. Okay. Yeah. And so you got yourself a Division One scholarship. I sure did. Wow, that wow. was so, convenient. Well, <laughs> I yeah. So yeah, obviously it's uh, you've got to put in a lot of dedication, and mm-hmm. we talk a lot here about how with our athletes we don't expect them to necessarily go on to professional careers. Most of them won't, but what they learn in that process. I think that athletics are so important and sport and being a team player and all of these things that lead to other things in life to success. Absolutely. So as a teacher, I'd love to hear your perspective on that. What with your swimming, what did you take from that you're able to bring into the rest of your life? And how important do you think this development is, this athletic development. And let's say for a minute that we don't necessarily have a kid who's gifted in athletics, right? Mm -hmm. Is it equally important for them to still participate and so on, right? Those are the things that I'm always kind of talking about with parents and I believe they should be, but I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. Well, being a swimmer um, through middle school, high school and college, it absolutely defined who I was. Um, I learned how to work hard and I learned how to work harder. And um, I was a fierce competitor. I love to compete um, and I love to get stronger. Mm. It was very satisfying for me um, to be a, a strong female athlete and to be independent as well. And just the dedication that it takes to be a good athlete you know, my friends through high school would roll their eyes at me when it, I, you know, I'd 
be like 9.30 at night and I'd say, I got to go home because I got practice in the morning. I'm going to be exhausted. It's 9.30. And, you know, throughout college, too, I, I would always be the first one in bed and, you know, things like that. That, But it lent to me being a successful athlete and, and making the improvements that um, I set for myself as goals. And for my own children, I believe it's very important to have the structure of athletics. Um, I, we work very hard in our family to not overschedule our children. It's really difficult in this day and age, but our rule is you one sport at a time. Right. Um, so that we still have family time. We have play time. We have time to be a, a kid. Um, Commit to that sport. And if you decide that you don't like it, that's fine. At the end of the season, we'll make a switch. But you're going to commit for that time because you said you wanted to. And let's figure out how to get better at what we're doing. Um, And we just think that having the structure and having the perseverance and commitment really forms who we are, forms our character. Have you read Carol Dweck? uh, Dweck, I believe it is, with uh, Grit. Have you read that book? I haven't, but I have had several people tell me that I should. <laughs> yeah, and just what you just mentioned about uh, committing to a sport, you, mm-hmm. you've got to finish out the season. She has a whole chapter on that. Oh, does she? Yeah, and so I thought, you know, with your experience, you have learned that this is important. And uh, it's very, a lot of similarities there with what we're doing with our daughter as well. Mm-hmm. We have to make that commitment. I don't want to overcommit her. I want it to be fun. Exactly. Um, my pet peeve is is the specialization of sports so early on and these kids doing soccer year round or swimming year round swimming actually i will tell you a little tidbit swimming has now become the number one sport for injuries really yes because i believe that it's starting to specialize so young I could see that. And overtraining, perhaps. Oh, yeah. That's, uh-huh. that's another podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Matt's eyes just doubled yeah, inside. Just, <laughs> just, just, just crushes me. Some of the programs that uh, my kids that uh, come into our facility and we're there to provide some mechanical strength so that they will it will support their movement in the pool. But there's only so much we can do in that cyclic action. That volume is is so, so much at such a young age where they're even doing two-a-days and they're putting in 4,000, 5,000 mm-hmm. yards in the pool. And this is even a daily thing with some of them. And so that's something that I believe is promoting a lot of issues down the line. I think a lot of our best athletes are kind of ruined, if you will, early. And so just your thoughts as a Division One swimmer and how you went through that. You were telling me that your coach realized that you were actually not so much of an endurance swimmer. That's right. But more of a sprinter, if you will. Yeah. And uh, But that was your last year that you were Yeah, doing they, they kind of noticed it toward the end of my junior year of college. And, you know, it's interesting because through, through U.S. swimming, um, when I was in high school, really we we did distance training mm-hmm. and and you know now that i'm reflecting on it i'm wondering why is there such an emphasis on that long distance training for athletes that are 16 17 years old my college coach terry ganley is still coaching at the University of Minnesota with the swimming team there. And um, I'm still in touch with her. She's an amazing role model and amazing athlete. But she, she told me a handful of years ago, too, she said, so 
Yeah, we do it real, really differently now. <laughs> it's like, we overworked you guys. It was too much. And so the way that they're approaching training now is is completely different for their swimmers than when I was in college 20 years ago. You know what? Good for her. Yeah. Good for her. It shows yeah. what kind of coach she is that she's willing to learn. Oh, without a doubt. She's amazing. Right. I, I do believe that with coaches, a lot of times if they've been doing something a certain way for 20 years. Mm-hmm. The main issue is that they don't want to admit to themselves or feel vulnerable or feel like they weren't the expert because they had done something wrong and they've been doing it now for 20 years. That means I've been doing this wrong all this time. And it takes, I think, uh, a coach that's really willing to serve their athletes to say, you know what, guys, could have been doing this better. And that speaks a lot about her. Yeah, it does. And you know, Matt, it lends to teaching too. Right. You know, as I as I had to t- change quite a bit about my teaching strategies and even my goal for my students when I moved from teaching for monoliteracy to teaching for biliteracy, I had to look at the at the strategies I was using and and say these aren't going to work. Mm-hmm. I need to rethink how I'm doing what I'm doing to be the most effective for these kids. All right. So, right. you know, that's, I, that's like a good I said point. earlier, I've had such great role models. Yeah. Throughout my career. Yeah, no. Well, listen, when I'm working with athletes, they're putting their trust into me. And so the first thing I think is is having that vulnerability and letting them know that don't call me an expert. I'm not an expert. I'm still learning too. Exactly. Right. And you literally uh, say that like always wanted to be bilingual, but still working on it. Right. Yep. And so I love that attitude. And I think that if your students recognize that, they understand where you're coming from when you say, hey, you know what, we're going to do try this because I think it can be done better. And that's something everybody gets fired up about. They don't get resentful that, well, why didn't we do that before? Mm-hmm. Well, because I'm learning too, and I think that this can help more. And so everybody appreciates, I think, the fact that you're there to serve them rather than sort of dictating what you think should be done. Absolutely. And and we have a my teaching partner and I, Sinrit Yosin, we have a very constructivist approach and philosophy when it comes to teaching and learning and that our students need to create their learning. You know, we provide outlets and of course we have objectives and of course we have um, goals that we need to meet and standards that we need to achieve, but we're not there to give them the learning. We're there to create a space for learning and they construct the ideas and make the connections. We're just there to guide them and give them the language to be able to communicate about what they're learning how things have changed yeah. <laughs> that's so yeah. nice to hear that yeah. was so not my experience i in elementary even up to high school just felt like i was such a, a cog in a the machine they were just pumping us out make sure they pass the test okay good luck in college yeah that's uh, no <laughs> because then when you think about it too like the, the language that you have or the the level of spanish that you have for example mm-hmm. um Things Which that is you very memorized small. just going to disappear, yep. right? So we really make sure that there is context for our students and there's a purpose beyond the doors of the classroom to making sure that they get out and they practice their Spanish and we take them on field trips where they're using Spanish, um, that they see it other places than than just Jesse Beck Elementary. I was listening to, well, I did an audio book actually on my way back from Colorado and it was called Range. 
And so there's a couple interesting points they brought up in the book. So I guess we have talked about the Dunning-Kruger effect before in in this podcast, but it's sort of where you're becoming more self-aware of your learning curve. And that's when you really start to get mm-hmm. more mentally flexible, I think I would say. And I noticed that a lot of my younger athletes that I'm working with here, that they are oftentimes lacking some of that mental flexibility. And so what was interesting in the book is they were saying, well, okay, there's the 10,000 hour rule, for example, but is this practice purposeful? So they're looking at a well-intended teacher that they were recording in class and she was teaching them a lesson where she was kind of hinting at the answers when they didn't get it. And what they saw was that this class, they tested really well getting those answers, but they didn't really understand the why. Right. Right. And so they didn't have really necessarily that mental flexibility to say, okay, I can find out the answer on my own. And then they had another teacher who had a program that was set up much differently. Her kids did not test as well. So what's interesting there is during that period of time, and I believe these were younger kids, elementary school, but during that period of time, when these kids are sort of being evaluated and there's these national tests that the kids have to do, and the kids that didn't do as well initially in that period of time in their life went on, and because they learned the why of things more, they were better academically and had better, more success in their careers, essentially. And they also tested better on the material itself when they were retested on it later. Whereas the people who kind of just learned the answers and were sort of giving the the cues or the hints for the answers, they tested better right away. But when they were given that same test, I think it was a couple years later, they didn't test as well. No retention. Yeah, that doesn't surprise me at all. Not at all. Yeah. And and that's also our approach with dual language education, too. We we realize it's going to take longer for our students to achieve a level of literacy that's equal to native speaking peers. It takes five to seven years to acquire a new language. It's not an instantaneous thing that our, our first graders who are learning English and learning Spanish will perform at the same level of students that are just learning English and learning to read and write, listen and speak in English. And it, it takes time, but if you look at the research and if you stick with the program and if the program is well implemented, meaning it's supported um, from the district level and that the teachers are well trained and using strategies, the students in the dual language programs will then outperform native speaking peers by the time they get to 11th grade, but it it takes a long time. So they start hitting that 50th percentile around fifth or sixth grade and then shoot beyond and perform better, outperform their monolingual peers. Interesting. You're training Mm -hmm. that cognitive processor that they've got in between their ears. And that's really interesting. I didn't know that. Yeah. So the thing is, it takes time. And it's hard. Mm-hmm. And um, understanding that, that that language development is a process as well as the literacy development. And I love how these conversations cross over. Yeah. And so you've been crossing it back over to education. I right. keep crossing it over back <laughs> to sports. But it reminds me of... Uh, Again, that athlete that as a young athlete does many different sports and they're not 
necessarily the star of the team in any one sport because they keep doing a different season, a different sport. Let mm -hmm. me try something new. But they are advancing their nervous systems in multiple ways. Right, being flexible. Mm -hmm. Yes, right. We could use that in a lot of ways, right? Mm -hmm. And they're less likely to have issues with over patterns or yep. injuries. Right. They're more likely to have a longer shelf life. And then, of course, even the world's best, oftentimes, when you look back at their younger years, they were multi-sport athletes who crossed over later mm -hmm. than a lot of other athletes did. So that's always interesting to me. We can compare it to learning a second language. We can compare it to being a student. We can compare it to being an athlete. And of course, we can even look at careers that way. And how do we keep from burning out because we are doing a multi-layered approach to wanting to be a better version. And now we can maybe specialize that approach towards something that we really want to be our legacy that we're passionate about. And before I forget, though, I've got to ask you this, too. I feel like I went into AmeriCorps, and mm -hmm. we were talking about that a little bit. You know, to be honest with you, I didn't know what else I wanted to do at the time. I had this sort of unfocused energy and it allowed me some time to serve the community, which I really learned so much there. But um, so many of my friends, they just went right into college. They just went right into their studies. Unfortunately, I would say that most of my friends that took that route they are not passionate about what they do. They don't enjoy their careers. Interesting. Right? Yeah. And I mean, I can even tell you the pressure I felt. I remember really this career I'm in now, I went from firefighting into what, what I'm doing now as a strength coach and uh, I guess podcaster. We do that we too. Do that too. <laughs> but this has uh, been an interesting conversation for me with a lot of parents is, you know, to me, it's what's what's the rush? Because I believe that with that unfocused energy, I need more time to figure myself out to know my why. But then once I was able to find that why, then I really started to shoot forward and accelerate. And for me, I don't I wouldn't do it any differently. What's your feelings on that with how I feel like with a lot of students, they're so concerned with getting into this X, whatever this school is that they think is going to give them this career that they need. And their high school becomes a lot of, I think, stress in that sense where they have to be able to qualify to be able to get into this specific program. And now they have to get these grades so that they can get into this school. And if they don't do those things, their life is going to be over. Right. What's your thoughts on that? Yeah, that makes me sad. <laughs> but it's so hard when when you're a very driven person, for example, mm -hmm. or when when you're raised in a culture that you must succeed. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I think families set that up a lot of times, but some kids are just born with it, you know, needing to always accomplish more um, or, or having the weight of certain expectations on them. I think that it can do a lot of harm. Mm -hmm. And we realize that sometimes we don't make those goals and we fall short and then what? Right. And and then we're picking up the pieces with students that don't know how to problem solve when things don't go their way. And when they don't achieve a goal, how to overcome that and, and change the goal. So 
I mean, that's a big part of what we do as teachers, but I think it's an even bigger part of what we do as parents and making sure that our children have the opportunity to fail along the way um, and that they feel okay about failing and, and that they learn from it. I right. love it. I love it. <laughs> I, it's like you've been listening to our recent podcast. We've <laughs> talked about failing forward a lot lately. Yeah. And, well, it's and, important and, and because kids have a lot of anxiety around not being the best always. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, it happens with, with my children all the time with little things like being responsible and and what happens if you leave the scooter at school overnight because you forgot to bring it home, right? Uh, so natural consequences are super important. And, and we're there not to point our finger or, or to say you failed or you did it wrong, but instead to say, well, the first poem that our kindergartners learn mistakes are good. They help us grow. They show us what we want to know. So if you make a mistake, don't cry. You'll get better if you try. And all of our kindergartners, I mean, you walk into my classroom and they could recite that for you. Our first graders to remember it from the first two weeks of kindergarten. And it's just so that, and I make mistakes all the time in the classroom and the kids are like, mistakes are good. They help us grow. And they just help me get over it. So it's great. It's great and important that kids see us make mistakes so that they don't feel like the weight is on their shoulders too, to be perfect. Yeah. And you provide that healthy guidance toward those lessons. You're not, like you said, not pointing the finger at their mistakes. You just point it out and you say, okay, here's what we do now. Yeah. What should we do next? It's going to be okay. Avoid it in the future. Right. 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 That's great. So Dana, Mm -hmm. what is a main lesson that you've learned through all of these experiences and what would you leave the listener with when, uh, when they're going through their own challenges What's your message to them? You know, I think one of my biggest life lessons that I'm working on right now is to be okay with asking for help, Mm. that we shouldn't put the weight all on ourselves to be able to achieve everything that needs to be done. Um, I, I, I just keep asking for more people to help in this quest for more bilingual education for our students so that we can help lessen the achievement gap between our our English language learners and our our English speakers, but also to raise the status of Spanish and to get more and more people bilingual. I can't do it by myself and no one's expecting me to, and I don't want to. So I need to ask for help and I need to make sure that, that I'm okay with other people helping along the process. Yeah. They want to. You mentioned something in your notes about Mm -hmm. with, Spanish, or I guess it would be with bilingual programs, rather. Mm-hmm. You mentioned something in your notes about how part of what you want to impact is you don't want it to be looked down upon. Yeah. Yeah. What do you mean by that exactly? So when you think about the status of Spanish in the United States, mm-hmm. if you were to, to hold your hands out and you have your, your right hand as being the status of English in our society, and your left hand as the status of Spanish, and you, you would raise or lower one. Um, if you ask a room full of educators, at least, but probably anyone, even at the grocery store, how is English viewed in our society and how is Spanish? That English hand would rise to the ceiling and that Spanish hand would lower to the mm. floor. And there is a lot of negative... Um, Ethos. Yeah. You know, people look down upon 
people who speak languages other than English, but especially Spanish here in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Um, or you go to the to the library and you and people hear people talking in another language. And, and I have overheard people saying, we're in America. You need to speak English. So have I. I've seen it. And it's it's devastating because language is culture. Language is who we are. And to me, an, an accent is a mark of bilingualism. And you need to be proud of that because having the ability to communicate to multiple groups of people and respect different cultures, it, it just makes you a global citizen instead of blinders on this is the way it should be. There is no way we are all ever going to be the same. And why would we want that? I agree. And I think what your work is helping to do is helping to bridge that communication gap because right. we can you can see it anywhere you go to the grocery store like you mentioned you can see it and communication would probably alleviate a bit of that but until we get to that point where we can have those conversations with each other right your work is crucial and it's so funny like people overhear someone talking in another language and they automatically think oh my gosh they're talking about me what are they saying guess what people they're not talking about you they don't, they're just talking about what's on the grocery list and oh my, we need this to make our dinner. They don't, it's it, for some reason, as, at least with the monolingual mindset, people think that other people are out to get them and, and that's not, that's not it. Fear yeah. of the unknown. Yeah. And that's yeah. exactly it, Jake. They're, they're afraid of what they don't know and, and we need yeah. to be more inclusive and, and yeah. um, celebrate people that, that are different from us. Right. Yeah. The fear of change. And I know with my family, I'm Italian. So when my family moved over to the U.S., they were embarrassed and they did not teach their kids uh, Italian. In fact, they wouldn't even speak it at home. And so that was, I think, the the thinking. And, And I think some uh, of that still exists. And sure, absolutely. We hear it all the time. Yeah, like you're saying, like, hey, we're in America. And, mm-hmm. But, um, you know, you're kind of fighting the good fight and changing the perspective on that. Yeah, we're hoping to. And and just, you know, being in America, you can't help but be marinated in English. And people learn the English and pick up on the English. But we we shouldn't forget where we come from. Mm-hmm. It's a big part of who we are. Language is such a big part of our identity. Um, And when we have generations that cannot communicate with one another because they're forced to lose language, that's just awful. If you, you know, if you couldn't communicate with your grandparents, for example. Right. So we want to support that. Yeah. No, I, I love that. And so just finishing this up, we have a lot of parents and we have a lot of students listening. And I feel that with somebody like you, an example like you, you can leave us with maybe a final thought about What can we do? What can we help with in our communities to be able to push this movement forward along with you? What kind of ways can we serve that? Well, I I love that idea. Thank you so much. We would Uh, like to help you too. Yeah, thanks. So, you know, I think one of the biggest takeaways that really changed how I think about language is having that multilingual perspective in, in that knowing more than one language is such a positive thing and to celebrate the accents that you hear to celebrate and appreciate the other languages and cultures that make our world so unique 
and that we are global citizens. And so we should act like that and embrace it. Well said. Stop being so mean to each other. <laughs> exactly, right? Can't stand it. Who's to say you're better or worse than I am? So, Dana Hart, elementary school teacher, molder of minds. Oh, I hope. I hope we're making a, a big difference in the future of our kids and in the future of our community. As I'm well. sure you are. I believe it. You've made an impact on me. Well, thanks. Just having this conversation. <laughs> and I appreciate that greatly. Where can people, again, find some examples of your work and get to, some more information on, on what you do? So, if if you would like to see my blog at teachingforbiliteracy.com, check out how I fit in underneath the blogs. Um, and then we're at Jesse Beck Elementary School and uh, just doing the best we can with our kids every day. But we're we're starting to head out into the community more, too, and, and see if we can get some bilingualism out and around the city of Reno and course throughout the u.s <laughs> so given some food for thought i'm just going to take one of your notes at the very end here you said i encourage people to reflect on how they respond when they hear other people speaking in different languages yes. what do you think how does it make you feel right so please reflect reflect great dana thank you so much thanks matt thanks jake appreciate your time talking to you and while everyone is checking out your website at teachingforbiliteracy.com if you're sitting at a computer you can always send us an email pendolaproject at gmail.com and you can find pendola project on facebook give us a like there we're also on instagram and if you're listening on a podcast app go ahead and write a little nice review it helps out the show yeah man thanks for listening Listening.